The best in Bitcoin made audible. You're listening to Bitcoin Audible with Guy Swan. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible with Guy Swan, your host, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Uh, Today's read is, uh, if y'all saw that it dropped at the end of last week, um, uh, needs no introduction. Parker Lewis uh, is continuing, has another great, great installment to the Gradually, Then Suddenly series on the Unchained Capital blog, Um, and we're just going to jump right into it. It is titled, Bitcoin is Anti-Fragile. Um, two quick reminders, just because they are uh, fresh. Um, well, first, obviously, uh, supporting this show, Swan Bitcoin, uh, set up your auto DCA, your auto buy of Bitcoin every week at a swanbitcoin.com slash guy, and you are also supporting this show. And if you have not gotten your BitBlock Boom tickets, uh, use offer code CC for Cryptoconomy, and you will get 30% off of those tickets. And that is the Bitcoin Maximalist Conference. So if you haven't been, I highly recommend it. It's going to be a great time. But with that, let's go ahead and jump into our piece by Parker Lewis at the unchained-capital.com blog. Bitcoin is anti-fragile. If one thing is certain, it is that Bitcoin is humbling. It humbles everyone, some sooner than others, but everyone eventually. Individuals you respect may have called Bitcoin a fraud or compared it to rat poison, but if it hasn't been walked back yet, it will be in time. For most everyone first considering Bitcoin, the reality is that the proper context to evaluate it is practically non-existent even for the most revered financiers of our time. Is Bitcoin like a stock? Bond? Tech startup? The internet? Or merely a figment of everyone's imagination? At first glance, Bitcoin admittedly makes very little sense. It is very reasonably believed by many to be one massive collective hallucination. There exist two fundamental problems. Almost everyone lacks the baseline to evaluate Bitcoin because there has never been anything like it. And very few, prior to Bitcoin, have ever consciously considered what money is. Every day people evaluate whether to invest in stocks, bonds, or real estate, or whether or not to buy a home or a car, or whether to purchase some consumer good, or conversely, whether to save. While there are exceptions to every rule, practically everyone is unequipped to evaluate Bitcoin because it does not fit any prior mental framework. It is like asking someone with no concept of mathematics what 2 plus 2 equals. It may be obvious to those that know math, but if not, it's unrelatable. To make it even more difficult, Bitcoin is so abstract an application and so far from a tangible phenomenon, that it is like staring into the abyss. Bitcoin is both difficult to see and impossible to unsee once discovered. 
But often the path from one end of the extreme to the other is a journey, where the impossible first becomes possible, then probable, and ultimately inevitable. Eventually some chord is struck or some dot connected. As the fog begins to lift, there naturally remains the idea that while Bitcoin is possible, it is surely subject to high degrees of chance and more likely to fail than succeed. It is perceived to be inherently fragile and risky. Many believe that Bitcoin could vanish as quickly as it appeared on scene. At the beginning of the journey, it seems to live somewhere between an aspiring long shot and just one unidentified silver bullet away from complete and utter collapse. Bitcoin is novel, and it is often thought of as untested and unproven. Launched in 2009, Bitcoin seemingly lacks permanence. It is not yet anchored in time. But on the other hand, Bitcoin has been around for going on 12 years and has a total purchasing power or value of $180 billion. 12 years of operating history and hundreds of billions in value may still be an upstart, but it is far from untested and unproven. Instead, it is thriving in the wild without any central coordination. And it is this lack of central coordination that gives Bitcoin its lifeblood. Decentralization not only allows Bitcoin to function, but it is also what causes it to gain strength rather than falter when stressed. That Bitcoin is natively digital and powered by computers running software capable of being shut down lends to the default impression that Bitcoin is inherently fragile. The mental image of a computer network being unplugged creates the false sense that one day and suddenly, somehow Bitcoin as a system could cease to exist, when the opposite is true for the very same reason. That Bitcoin both exists everywhere and nowhere, that it is controlled by no one, that anyone is capable of running the open source software from anywhere, and that hundreds of thousands of people do, relied upon by tens of millions and growing, is what gives Bitcoin permanence. With no single point of failure, Bitcoin is practically impossible to stop because it is impossible to control. And it is a dynamic system that only becomes more redundant and further decentralized in time and with increasing adoption. In short, Bitcoin is more permanent than risky because it is an anti-fragile system. An idea popularized by Nassim Taleb, anti-fragility describes systems or phenomena that gain strength from disorder, which is Bitcoin to its core. There is no silver bullet that kills Bitcoin. There is no competitor that can magically overtake it. There is no government that can shut it down. But it does not stop there. Each attack vector and shock to the system actually causes Bitcoin to become stronger. Quote, Some things benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stressors, and love, adventure, risk, and uncertainty. Yet in spite of the ubiquity of the phenomenon, there is no word for the exact opposite of fragile. Let us call it anti-fragile. Anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. 
This property is behind everything that has changed with time. Evolution, culture, ideas, revolutions, political systems, technological innovation, cultural and economic success, corporate survival, good recipes, say, chicken soup or steak tartare with a drop of cognac. The rise of cities, cultures, legal systems, equatorial forests, bacterial resistance, even our own existence as a species on this planet. An anti-fragility determines the boundary between what is living and organic, or complex, say the human body, and what is inert, say a physical object, like a stapler on your desk. The anti-fragile loves randomness and uncertainty, which also means, crucially, a love of errors, a certain class of errors. Nassim Taleb, Anti-Fragile Bitcoin is an adaptive and evolving system. It is not static. No one controls the network, and there are no leaders capable of forcing changes onto the network. It is decentralized at every layer, and as a result, it is shown to be immune to any type of attack. However, it is not just immune to attack or errors. Bitcoin actually becomes stronger as 1. External forces attempt to influence or co-opt the network. 2. As individuals within the network make errors. And 3 as a very function of its volatility, which is often perceived to be a limiting, if not critical, flaw. As Bitcoin survives shocks, and as individuals learn from errors and adapt to its volatility, Bitcoin becomes tangibly more reliable. Its demonstration of resilience and immunity causes trust to be reinforced in the network, which increases adoption and makes Bitcoin more resistant to future attack or individual errors. It is a positive, self-reinforcing feedback loop. With every failed attempt to co-opt or coerce the network, the Bitcoin protocol hardens and confidence increases. Every time Bitcoin doesn't die, that very event propels Bitcoin forward and in a fundamentally stronger state than previously existed. Each exogenous shock to the network provides learnings that cause Bitcoin to adapt in a spontaneous way, which can only be endemic to a decentralized system. Because Bitcoin is decentralized and because it becomes increasingly decentralized as a function of time and adoption, not only is there no single point of failure, but the increasing levels of redundancy ensure network survival and fortify it against future attacks. There is a positive correlation between time and the degree of network decentralization. Similarly, there is a positive correlation between the degree of decentralization and the network's ability to fend off more formidable attacks. Essentially, as the network becomes more decentralized over time, it also becomes resistant to threats it may not have been capable of surviving in prior states. Separately, each error within the system is isolated to the responsible parties, and as Bitcoin grows, each potential point of failure becomes less critical to the proper functioning of the network as a whole. Weak points in the network are sacrificed, and the system strengthens in aggregate. The entire process is made more effective and efficient because it is never a conscious decision. 
It is simply structural to the system architecture. No one picks winners and losers. Decentralization eliminates moral hazard and ensures system survival at the same time. At all times, network participants are maximally accountable for their own errors. There are no bailouts. Incentives and accountability optimize for innovation and naturally drive toward consistently better outcomes in aggregate. It doesn't eliminate error, but it ensures that errors are productive as the mere fact of survival affords that the network as a whole has the opportunity to adapt to threats and to immunize around them. Whether born from exogenous shocks or internal errors, Bitcoin feeds on disorder, stressors, volatility, and randomness, collectively a hallmark of an anti-fragile system. Bitcoin Benefits from Disorder The lack of social order in Bitcoin may be its single greatest asset. There is no CEO of Bitcoin, nor is there a centralized authority that controls it. There is no person or organization to drag in front of Congress, whether to answer questions or demand action. In fact, there is no Congress or legislative body with any influence over Bitcoin, preferential or otherwise. It does not mean that any individual or company is immune from influence, nor does it prevent any country from attempting to regulate or ban Bitcoin. But disorder insulates the network from external threats. While Facebook's Libra is fundamentally plagued as a currency for reasons independent of government influence, the CEO and other top executives were quickly brought before Congress soon after its announcements to answer questions and with key legislators demanding the project be delayed, if not scrapped, over concerns of national security and other regulatory issues. It is not that CEOs and companies cannot coexist with government. Instead, it is that the mere existence creates influence and that could never exist in Bitcoin at a protocol level, and the absence of which allows Bitcoin to be viable as a currency. Quote, The root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. The central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency. But the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. Satoshi Nakamoto, February 11, 2009 With no central counterparties controlling the network, Bitcoin functions on a decentralized basis and in a state that eliminates the need for, and dependence on, trust. Its distributed architecture reduces the network's attack surface by eliminating central points of failure that would otherwise expose the system to critical risk. By being built on a foundation of social disorder, and only in the absence of control, is Bitcoin able to function on a secure basis. It is the precise opposite of the trust-based central bank model. Bitcoin is a monetary system built on a market consensus mechanism rather than centralized control. There are certain consensus rules that govern the network. Each participant opts in voluntarily, and everyone can independently verify and enforce that the rules are being followed. If any market participant changes a rule that is inconsistent with the rest of the network, that participant falls out of consensus. The network consensus rules ultimately define what is and what is not 
a Bitcoin. And because each participant is capable of enforcing the rules independently, it is the aggregate function of enforcement on a decentralized basis that ensures there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. By eliminating trust in central counterparties, all network participants are able to rely upon and ultimately trust that the monetary policy is secure and that it will not be subject to arbitrary change. It may seem like a paradox, but it is perfectly rational. The system is trusted because it is trustless, and it would not be trustless without high degrees of social disorder. Ultimately, a spontaneous order emerges out of disorder and strengthens as each exogenous system shock is absorbed. For example, in 2017, there was a civil war of sorts that emerged in Bitcoin. Many of the largest companies that provide Bitcoin custody and exchange services aligned with large Bitcoin miners that controlled 85% plus of the network's mining capacity, or hash rate, in an attempt to force a change to the consensus rules. This group of power brokers wanted to double the Bitcoin block size as a means to increase the network's transaction capacity. However, an increase to the block size would have required a change to the network consensus rules, which would have split or hard-forked the network. As a part of a negotiated, quote, agreement, the group proposed to activate a significant network upgrade referred to as SegWit, an upgrade that would not change the consensus rules, at the same time the block size would be doubled, which would have changed the consensus rules. With most large service providers and miners on board, plans were set in motion to affect the changes. However, a curveball was thrown when a user-led effort prompted the activation of the SegWit network upgrade without changing the network consensus rules and without increasing the block size. Read more here, link provided. The effort to change the network's consensus rules failed miserably, and Bitcoin steadily marched forward undisturbed. In practice, it often cannot be known whether Bitcoin is resistant to various threats until the threats present themselves. In this case, it was disorder that prevented coordinated forces from influencing the network, and at the same time, everyone learned the extent to which Bitcoin was resistant to censorship, which further strengthened the network. Industry Executive Ted Rogers, prior to the Segwit2x failure, tweet, to be clearer, we care deeply about censorship resistance, but does the average new user care more about that or transaction fees and speed? I think the latter. September 7, 2017 After the Segwit2x failure, Ted Rogers Ironically, it was the loss of the Segwit2x debate that made me realize all this once and for all. Large, powerful industry threw everything at implementing a seemingly innocuous change to Bitcoin in order to relieve a perceived crisis. We lost badly. The Segwit2x fail was the final victory for Bitcoin as digital gold. Bitcoin is uncontrollable, ungovernable, and completely decentralized. Immutable. Agility and governance might help building a currency, but it's a liability for a store of value and for an immutable record of transactions.
Editor's note. This is not a criticism of Ted Rogers, but rather a recognition of leadership in articulating a perspective that changed following the Segwit2x hard fork fail and helping to educate others. This episode in Bitcoin's history demonstrated that no one was in control of the network. Not even the most powerful companies and miners, practically all aligned, could change Bitcoin. It was an incontrovertible demonstration of the network's resistance to censorship. It may have seemed like an inconsequential change. A majority of participants probably supported the increase in the block size, or at least the idea. But it was always a marginal issue. And when it comes to change, Bitcoin's default position is no. Only an overwhelming majority of all participants, naturally with competing priorities, can change the network's consensus rules. And it really was never a debate about block size or transaction capacity. What was at stake was whether or not Bitcoin was sufficiently decentralized to prevent external and powerful forces from influencing the network and changing the consensus rules. See, it's a slippery slope. If Bitcoin were susceptible to change by the dictate of a few centralized companies and miners, it would have established that Bitcoin were censorable. And if Bitcoin were censorable, then all bets would be off. There would have been no reasonable basis to believe that other future changes would not be forced on the network. And ultimately, it would have impaired the credibility of Bitcoin's fixed 21 million supply. That the most powerful players in Bitcoin could not influence the network reinforced its viability. And it was only possible because of the disorder inherent to the system itself. It was impossible to collude or to co-opt the network because of decentralization. And it did not just show Bitcoin to be resilient. The failure itself made the network stronger. It educated the entire network on the importance of censorship resistance and demonstrated just how uncensorable Bitcoin had become. It also informs future behavior as the economic costs and consequences are both real and permanent. Resources to support the effort turned into sunk costs, reputations were damaged, and costly trades were made. All said, confidence in Bitcoin increased as a function of the failed attempts to control the network. And confidence is not just a passive descriptor. It dissuades future attempts to co-opt the network and drives adoption. Increasing adoption further decentralizes the network making it even more resistant to censorship and outside influence. It may seem like chaos, but really, social disorder was and will continue to be an asset that secures the network from unpredictable and undesirable change. Alright, we're about halfway through, maybe a little bit more, so let's go ahead and take a break, hit our sponsor, and then we will jump back in on the next section titled Bitcoin benefits from stressors. You know them, you love them. The best place to buy Bitcoin is swanbitcoin.com. Don't forget to add that slash guy at the end. I have been waiting for someone to perfect and simplify this service for years in Bitcoin. Purchasing a small amount automatically 
at regular intervals is the best way to build a position in Bitcoin and prepare for our future. Both the lowest fees and the simplest setup to do that is at Swan Bitcoin. It will auto-withdraw from your bank account, auto-buy Bitcoin, and even auto-withdraw to your own keys or hardware wallet. You set it once and forget it, and you have got the holy trinity of sound money investment. You ignore the day-to-day -day price noise, please. It's, it, day trading is a full-time job, and it is not fun. It's a great way to lose your Bitcoin. Ignore the price noise, ignore the volatility, and build a position in the future of money. Go to swanbitcoin.com guy to support your own future, but you also support my work here at the Bitcoin Audible podcast. That is swanbitcoin.com guy. Okay, let's jump back in at Bitcoin Benefits from Stressors. Attempts to influence the network consensus rules may be the most acute stressor, as it is these rules that underpin the entire system and create order out of disorder. But Bitcoin is consistently exposed to a myriad of smaller stressors that similarly strengthen the network as a whole and over time. There are many different forms of stress, but because Bitcoin is exposed to stress on a consistent basis and of a wide variety, it forces the network to constantly adapt and evolve while also building its immune system from the outside in. Types of Stressor Consensus Rules Examples The Segwit2x Civil War and the Bitcoin Cash Hard Fork the impact and the outcome. Bitcoin proves to be censorship resistant. Bitcoin wins and strengthens. Stressor government action. The Indian Central Bank banning banks' ability to service Bitcoin companies. China clamping down on exchanges and mining activities. U.S. Congress representatives calling for bans or restrictions. Bitcoin addresses being put on the OFAC list. The outcome? Network continues to function uninterrupted. The network adapts and immunizes threats. Bitcoin wins and strengthens. Stressor of competing protocols. Bitcoin hard forks and copies. World computer. Utility tokens. Stable coins and Facebook's Libra. The outcome? Competing currencies fail. Bitcoin remains dominant. Market tests provide information. Bitcoin wins and strengthens. The stressors of a company or service provider error. Like the Mt. Gox hack, stolen Bitcoin. The Bitfinex hack, stolen Bitcoin. Binance hack, stolen Bitcoin. BlockFi hack, stolen personal information. And hardware wallet vulnerabilities. Outcome? The errors are owned by the responsible parties. There are no bailouts. Accountability eliminates moral hazard. Companies adapt or fail. Bitcoin wins and strengthens. And stressors of individual user error. Individual exchange accounts getting hacked. Accounts being frozen or terminated. SIM swaps. Bitcoin wallets being lost or stolen. Forgetting passphrases to private keys malicious browser extensions, or malware. The outcome. Errors are owned by the responsible parties. No bailouts.
Accountability eliminates moral hazard. Individuals adapt or lose money. Bitcoin wins and strengthens. Each form of stress hardens the Bitcoin network, and often for different reasons. Whenever governments take action in an attempt to ban Bitcoin or otherwise restrict its use, the network continues to function unperturbed. China and India, countries with a combined population of 2.7 billion people, have both taken material actions to curb the spread of Bitcoin. Despite this, the network as a whole continues to function without flaw, and Bitcoin continues to be used in both countries. After the RBI, Central Bank of India, restricted the ability for banks to service Bitcoin or cryptocurrency-related companies, the Supreme Court in India ultimately overturned the ban as unconstitutional. It sets precedent in more ways than one. First, that the central bank was overruled. Second, that the ban was ultimately unsuccessful as people continued to find ways to access Bitcoin. And third, that despite these actions, the network was unfazed. Separately, China has taken measures to restrict the ability of exchanges to facilitate Bitcoin trading and has expressed an interest in eliminating Bitcoin mining. Similar to India, people continue to use Bitcoin in China, and the Bitcoin network has been undeterred. Naturally, as government regulation in China has become more restrictive, miners have begun to look to more stable jurisdictions. Bitcoin mining in the United States, among other regions, continues to grow, and Peter Thiel recently backed a startup that is building out mining operations in West Texas. Regardless of the threat, Bitcoin exists beyond countries and governments. The network adapts to jurisdictional risks and continues to function without interruption. As network participants observe the failed attempts to inhibit Bitcoin's growth and witness how it adapts, Bitcoin does not merely remain static. It actually becomes more resilient through this process by routing around and immunizing each passing threat. An entirely different type of stress comes in the form of competing cryptocurrencies. Since Bitcoin was launched in 2009, there have been no fewer than a thousand competing digital currencies. While often, but not always, espousing different purposes and or use cases, in each instance, every single one has in reality been competing with Bitcoin as money. In many cases, the creators do in fact call out perceived flaws in Bitcoin and how a particular competing protocol intends to improve on its, quote, limitations. Despite thousands of competitors, Bitcoin accounts for nearly 70% of all cryptocurrencies in terms of market value. And when adjusted for liquidity, the estimate is closer to 90%. Whereas one currency accounts for 70 to 90% of value depending on the metric, thousands of competing currencies account for 10% to 30%. That is the market distinguishing between Bitcoin and the field. Competition is inherently good for Bitcoin. Not only does each attempt to create a better Bitcoin fail, the repeated failures actually inform market participants that there is something which distinguishes Bitcoin from the rest of the field. Even if the what or why is not immediately self-evident, the market provides useful information. Bitcoin does not just withstand the competition, it beats the competition. 
While Bitcoin cannot be copied, link to his previous article, that fact is more easily learned through market functions and market tests than any amount of reason and logic. Through the failed experiences of competing currencies, Bitcoin accumulates more human capital, and the network grows as a direct result. If Bitcoin were never tested or challenged, it would not have the opportunity to benefit from stress. That it is constantly challenged and stressed through competition creates a more resilient network and a larger holder base. While stress exposed to the network from external threats creates positive externalities, Bitcoin also benefits from more regular and consistent stressors from within the network, typically arising in the form of malicious attacks or unintentional error. Attacks aimed at participants within the network, whether companies or individuals, occur practically at a constant clip. Each participant is maximally and independently responsible for the security of their Bitcoin holdings, whether choosing to trust a third party or whether taking on that responsibility directly. Many of the largest exchanges in the world have been hacked, as have many individuals within the network. For those that have not, the threat always exists. As participants are compromised, hacked, or otherwise have access to Bitcoin restricted, it does not impact the functioning of the network. But like all stressors, the attack vectors directly cause the network to adapt and become stronger. With numerous critical exchange failures, market participants increasingly shift to taking on the responsibility of holding their own Bitcoin independent from third-party service providers. The same is true in response to individual accounts at exchanges getting hacked. Not dissimilarly, as threats are identified for those that secure their own Bitcoin, more secure wallets are developed and users opt toward more secure ways to safely secure their Bitcoin by reducing or eliminating single points of failure. It is a constant evolution born out of the reality that stressors exist everywhere. The network is not exposed to any critical failures because the entire network iterates through trial and error around the clock, with free competition and endless market opportunity incentivizing innovation. And with each failure, everyone is on their own and personally accountable. The incentive structure dictates that everyone constantly seeks out better ways of securing Bitcoin. Through this process of stress, the network very naturally and organically strengthens. Bitcoin Benefits from Volatility Similar to the benefit provided by consistent stressors, volatility tangibly builds the immunity of the system. While it is often lamented as a critical flaw, Volatility is really a feature, not a bug. Volatility is price discovery, and in Bitcoin, it is unceasing and uninterrupted. There are no Fed market operations to rescue investors, nor are there circuit breakers. Everyone is individually responsible for managing volatility, and if caught off sides, no one is there to offer bailouts. Because there are no bailouts, Moral hazard is eliminated network-wide. Bitcoin may be volatile, but in a world without bailouts, the market function of price discovery is far more true because it cannot be directly manipulated by external forces. 
it is akin to a child touching a hot stove. That mistake will likely not be made more than once, and it is through experience that market participants quickly learn how unforgiving the volatility can be. And should the lesson not be learned, the individual is sacrificed for the benefit of the whole. There is no too big to fail in Bitcoin. Ultimately, price communicates information, and all market participants observe the market forces independently, each adapting or individually paying the price. But information is not just communicated through price volatility. Volatility is also how Bitcoin gets distributed and how the network becomes further decentralized. Every time a Bitcoin is sold, someone else is buying. Consistently, over time, the ownership of the network becomes more decentralized, and this occurs most acutely in bouts of volatility. In very tangible ways, the volatility strengthens Bitcoin by decentralizing it and reinforcing that while tulips may die, Bitcoin never does. As the network becomes more decentralized, it similarly becomes more censorship-resistant, and each individual within the network holds a smaller and smaller share of the currency, on average, resulting in a dynamic in which, over time, price is less exposed to the preferences of a few large holders. It is not to say that there do not remain large holders that can singularly influence price and volatility, but as a directional trend, the impact of any individual on price diminishes over time, and often directly through the distributive function of volatility itself. And when network participants, individually and as a whole, observe that Bitcoin survives, even after extreme downside volatility, that mere fact strengthens confidence in the network. At some price, individuals were willing to step in and catch the falling knife. Through these episodes, Bitcoin accumulates more human capital. The weak hands are shaken out, and the strongest hands always survive, often in the form of new holders. Causing the network to become more resilient and not merely remaining static or simply absorbing the disruption. Bitcoin actually feeds on the chaos. In the end, near-term volatility directly contributes to long-term stability. By maintaining a fixed supply with highly variable present demand, the market performs price discovery 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It is the intermittent stress that trains and hardens all individual owners and which prevents the network from being exposed to systemic risk. All while the opposite is true of fiat currencies. Central banks manage currencies to maintain short-term stability, but ultimately, by suppressing volatility, imbalances accumulate below the surface, leading to fragility and greater systemic shocks in the long term, as has been witnessed with increasing regularity over the last two decades. The contrast between the two competing systems could not be more extreme. And it is volatility in Bitcoin that communicates information with the least distortion, and without which, long-term stability would not be possible. Quote, Complex systems that have artificially suppressed volatility tend to become extremely fragile, while at the same time exhibiting no visible risks, 
Such environments eventually experience massive blow-ups, catching everyone off guard and undoing years of stability. Variation is information. When there is no variation, there is no information. There is no freedom without noise and no stability without volatility. Taleb and Blythe, Foreign Affairs, May and June 2011 issue. Bitcoin benefits from randomness. Quote, Many of the greatest things man has achieved are the result not of consciously directed thought, and still less the product of a deliberately coordinated effort of many individuals, but of a process in which the individual plays a part which he can never fully understand. They are greater than any individual precisely because they result from the combination of knowledge more extensive than a single mind can master. Hayek, The Counter-Revolution of Science Lastly, randomness. While most people recognize that there is intelligent design in Bitcoin's foundation, what is often missed is the randomness through which it evolved, and that what it became, money, was largely a function of that randomness. Lightning was caught in a bottle. It was the result of thousands of people making thousands of independent decisions very early on, but the process also continues to this day. From cryptographers and developers contributing time and energy, to companies and investors building infrastructure, and to users just wanting to find a better way to store value. If the reset button was hit, going all the way back to 2008 when the Bitcoin white paper was released, and the same initial code was released, placing the same people in the same rooms, Bitcoin would very likely not be what it is today. It may be better or worse, but ultimately, it was and continues to be a product of randomness. It is not the product of consciously directed thought, and it expands beyond the resources of individual minds because of that fact. For those that perceive flaws in Bitcoins and have or had ideas of how to make a better Bitcoin, the intelligence of Bitcoin's design is often observed and acknowledged. Design can be copied, and individual features can be changed out, but randomness cannot be replicated. One week after Bitcoin was launched, Hal Finney famously tweeted to the world that he was running Bitcoin. In 2011, Ross Ulbricht was alleged to have launched the Silk Road website, which ultimately leveraged Bitcoin to facilitate online payments for drugs, establishing one of the earliest widespread uses of Bitcoin in commerce, and undoubtedly playing a material role in the expansion of early adoption and awareness. In 2014, Mt. Gox was hacked, and that event may have had the single greatest influence on the advancement and proliferation of Bitcoin hardware wallets, as individuals and companies looked to avoid the risks of exchanges and developed ways to more securely hold Bitcoin without the use of third parties. In 2017, after a Bitcoin service provider drew the ire of Nicholas Doria, he set out to build a product that would obsolete that provider and service spawning one of the most exciting open-source projects within Bitcoin, BTC Pay Server. In 2018, Saifedean Amus released the Bitcoin Standard, which has accelerated knowledge distribution and contributed to a wave of Bitcoin adoption. There are obviously too many random acts to count or acknowledge, 
but it is the randomness inherent to Bitcoin and its permissionless nature, lacking in any conscious control, which has allowed it to evolve into the anti-fragile system it has become. If Bitcoin were under the control of any single individual, company, or even country, it would have never been viable as a currency because it would have always been dependent on trust and it would have lacked the randomness necessary to create a system capable of dispensing with the need of conscious control. Randomness is irreplaceable and the foundation of Bitcoin was built on it. Bitcoin is anti-fragile. In aggregate, as a currency and economic system, Bitcoin benefits from disorder. It is the constant exposure to stressors, volatility, and randomness which causes Bitcoin to evolve, adapt, and ultimately to become stronger in near-uniform fashion and in a way that would not be possible in the absence of disorder. Bitcoin may still be young, but it is not temporary. It was released into the wild, and what has spawned is a system that cannot be controlled or shut down. It's both everywhere and nowhere, all at the same time. It is like an elusive ghost. Its decentralized and permissionless state eliminates single points of failure and drives innovation, ultimately ensuring both its survival and a constant strengthening of its immune system as a function of time, trial, and error. Bitcoin is beyond resilient. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. Bitcoin gets better. While it is easy to fall into a trap, believing Bitcoin to be untested, unproven, and not permanent, it is precisely the opposite. Bitcoin has been constantly tested for going on 12 years, each time proving to be up to the challenge and emerging from each test in a stronger state. At the end of the day, Bitcoin is more permanent than it is risky because of anti-fragility. As a currency system, it manages to extend the utilization of resources beyond the control of deliberately coordinated effort, entirely dispensing with the need of conscious control altogether. Bitcoin is the anti-fragile competitor to the inherently fragile legacy monetary system. On the one hand, a legacy system crippled by moral hazard, dependent on trust and centralized control, one that accumulates imbalance and fragility when exposed to stress and disorder, principally as a function of trillions in bailouts with each passing shock, which only further weakens its immune system. That, compared to Bitcoin, which is a system devoid of moral hazard and which operates flawlessly on a decentralized basis without trust and without bailouts. It eliminates imbalance and sources of fragility as a constant process, further strengthening the currency system as a whole and as a function of time. What doesn't kill the legacy monetary system only makes it weaker. What doesn't kill Bitcoin only makes it stronger. Quote, Anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. Nassim Taleb, Anti-Fragile. 
But those who clamor for conscious direction, and who cannot believe that anything which has evolved without design, and even without our understanding it, should solve problems which we should not be able to solve consciously, should remember this. The problem is precisely how to extend the span of our utilization of resources beyond the span of the control of any one mind, and therefore, how to dispense with the need of conscious control, and how to provide inducements which will make the individuals do the desirable things without anyone having to tell them what to do. Hayek, The Use of Knowledge in Society And there we have it. That concludes Unchained Capital, uh, what is it, number 15 now in Gradually Then Suddenly series? By Parker Lewis? I don't even remember. Which one is it? It's a bunch. This, this has been an amazing series. A huge thank you to Parker Lewis for continuing this. Another uh, wonderful addition to this. Um, and uh, an idea that I just love. Um, and it, it applies in so many different ways when you're looking at Bitcoin. And like as you begin to see what Bitcoin really is and how many different ways... It's, it's, a natural, it's a natural order and lack of control leads to an incredible degree of strength and resilience that, that literally emerges out of the chaos that is the interaction with the Bitcoin system. But it's so funny how, like kind of when you first get into Bitcoin or the people who see it from the outside uh, really don't see, it's so hard to see the... the the inherent anti-fragility of, of what Bitcoin is. And it does, I mean, so many times I get the question of like, how, what if it just, you just shut it down and you just have the idea that it's running on some computer somewhere and that, oh God, you could unplug the computer. And there's a, there's a really cool idea that, um, a, a really cool framing that Nassim talks about in uh, Anti-Fragile, the book. Um, if you haven't read it, it's... Uh, uh, the concept that all of the individual units are uh, like of a system or a network or an organism or something like that, or a, a civilization, a society, a species, like all of these natural systems that are in fact anti-fragile, it is because of the fragility of the individual pieces. Like our cells, our individual cells are able to die and be replaced and able to have imbalances and be fixed. And that is what makes us as an organism anti-fragile, that we can correct for billions of small errors or wounds or, you know, all of these things like we are. We can adjust for bacteria and viruses and, and like that our immune system builds up and gets stronger the more things that we're exposed to. And the, uh, the, you know, the less we let it atrophy by, by you know, not essentially, um, you know, preventing stressors, you know, like uh, the difference between the sewer rat and the bubble boy concept that Andreas talks about. And I think Nassim kind of uh, alludes to a couple times in his book as well. Um, that, you know, the sewer rat is, you can put that sewer rat anywhere in the world and it's been exposed to so many things that its immune system is just going to absolutely destroy it. As long as it survives, it will, it'll be 
absolutely solid like that that little machine of biology will be nearly impenetrable to disease whereas the bubble boy is it, the second you pop a hole in that bubble the the it's going to die it just the immune system is is going to be in atrophy because it was protected from that volatility it was protected from imbalance it was protected from adjusting to any bacteria in the world and kept in this this bubble this false reality which caused which made it vulnerable to shocks and when the inevitable bubble got popped um it it killed the entire system it kills the the person himself and that's literally what we've seen with the market, with our financial market and the legacy system. And as I was reading through this the whole time, I was like, oh, man, I hope he goes into that. I hope he talks about like how the legacy system has literally taken the exact opposite approach and produced the exact opposite results. Um, uh, like uh, I talked about in an episode sometime back on engineering economic fragility and how literally everything we have done is like if I wanted to bring down an economic giant, like if I wanted to kill a system like that, there are so many things. Like I, I would literally just do so many of the things that they have done in order to weaken and make fragile our economy. This is why freedom and you know the perceived disorder of free association creates the best pricing and anti-fragile outcomes. Like what we're actually seeing in the Bitcoin markets of independent actors adjusting their behavior is the fact that Bitcoin doesn't allow them to manipulate the rules in order to, in, in order to uh, cover up their mistakes or to reverse and potentially not learn the lessons that require skin in the game to learn. Uh, and it's why, you know, in the in the markets, like in the legacy markets, the covering up of market volatility, the systemic suppression of price signals in, you know, the form of interest rate manipulation and uh, debt issuance whenever leverage has gone too far produces the exact opposite result. It worsens the moral hazard of the of the economy. It breeds and multiplies corruption. It increases both the reward and lowers the risk of political advantages over competition. To It makes it that much more profitable and important for you to have a, have a politician in your pocket, to have that avenue into the government, because that's a way to get trillions of dollars. That's a way to get in a massive amount of money and screw having to please customers, because if you can get a one-up on all of your competition and you can get a bailout while everybody else goes out of business, well, they're going to have to buy from you anyway, because you're the only one there. And if all of your other competition is, all the other major players are, you know, getting their political leg in the door, um, well, then you're screwed if you don't do it. It enables and reinforces the inherent immorality of bailouts. It builds larger imbalances and ultimately causes the entire economy to be increasingly fragile and unable to even weather mild storms or, of course, a virus without massive turmoil and immediate widespread economic catastrophe. You know, you don't go from 5% to 40% unemployment in a handful of weeks. That is never the result of a healthy, productive, high-savings, low-leveraged, balanced economy. 
It simply, you, it, that's not possible. You would literally have to kill like half of the economy. That, that wouldn't even lead to 40% unemployment. That would probably increase employment. It is literally only the result of horrible priorities, huge debts, price manipulation, interest rate manipulation, leveraging on an ungodly level, having no savings whatsoever, and being incredibly unhealthy as an economic system and misallocated across the board, that you can have that sort of a fallout and adjustment to people not working for a couple of weeks. And it is the inherent price volatility of Bitcoin that prevents exactly those sorts of imbalances from building up. That's what he's talking about when he says that the volatility is a feature, not a bug. When we know, when we see that Bitcoin can drop by 50% in a couple of days and then recover over the next two weeks and find itself back at a stable price, we know no one is able to manipulate a decades-long price manipulation and corruption of the pricing signal system. We know that that thing is working overtime 24-7 and price discovery is real in this illiquid market. That, that volatility is the very thing which makes us know it isn't controlled. And he even talks about how like, it's one of those things that helps prevent control and prevent... Um, uh, you know, consolidation, because every time we have these huge, huge swings, so much, so much Bitcoin is reallocated or moved from weak hands to strong hands to people to truly understand and don't listen to the market noise, you know, who, you know, the, the, um, the auto stackers would swan Bitcoin. Like those are the people who get more Bitcoin when their auto buy comes in and they're not watching the markets. And, when the volatility spikes and people are like, I, was, I hadn't been uh, buying Bitcoin or I just had some extra cash on hand and the price just dumped 50% and they scramble to get some to, to hold because they know this is temporary. They know this is price discovery in real time and it's not being covered up. And then from the network side, like, so that's just, that's just in the, the decentralization and uh, communication of information within the network. And I, and I love he, he talks about, um, I can't remember what the quote was, but it was something along the lines of, you know, there is reason and logic is never going to be as effective in making people understand the value and differentiation of Bitcoin uh, better than the price and the market outcomes, the market signals will. And in my opinion, the like less kind of in the section that he was talking about with competition is that the existence of all of these altcoins and you know shitcoins, like all of these ridiculous projects that claim to every time one of them claims they've solved a problem of Bitcoin and then it fails, every time one of them claims that Bitcoin is going to fail over and over and over again because, oh, it can't scale, oh, its fees are too high, oh, it's not innovating or doing anything, and then that project fails and Bitcoin continues to succeed, Bitcoin continues to have 90, 92 some odd percent of the volume weighted uh, dominance of the market this you know he, he mentions both the market cap at 70 percent and the volume weighted at 90 percent the market cap is just a nonsense um uh, it's a nonsense number um all it does is vastly overinflate, completely illiquid um 
pointless markets of shit coins and stuff. Like if I if I released a shit coin uh, with you know a million units and I did one trade on the first exchange that came up for one dollar and I bought one for one dollar, then that would appear to be a million dollar market cap of of the network. And there's one dollar has exchanged hands. One dollar worth of value has gone into it. Um and there's one dollar worth of liquidity. So if anybody puts, you know, the million tokens or whatever on the market, the price is zero immediately. There's a huge, huge problem with that that market cap dominance metric um that completely misses the it, one of the most important aspects of a monetary good of a uh, store of value like independent asset is liquidity um it, you know even you go back mises and manger like one of the absolute critical uh prerequisites to being a good money to being a good monetary good um is a good monetary a good good is in fact liquidity of the market availability of of that good in the markets and the simple truth is there is no serious competitor to bitcoin right now and the narratives that you know bitcoin has to fix this or or can't do this or that whatever it is uh they they just fall away as they don't come to pass as it as people realize um or, or as the market simply doesn't care about those narratives, that they prioritize a, uh, a different value proposition and that, you know, suddenly you do have all of those capabilities because you've got a programmable independent protocol to work from. You have things like lightning, you have things like sidechains, and, you know, you realize some of those, many of those applications simply aren't necessary or too early, make no sense at this stage, or are such a you know, a final layer, kind of like the Ian Griggs thing of the uh, financial cryptography in seven layers. You got to build out and really harden the foundation before you go all the way up to layer seven, where you're b building retail payment systems and, you know, financial instruments and derivatives and all of that stuff. You, if, you're, if your foundation is still wishy-washy, if your foundation is still all over the place and you don't even know what the freaking monetary policy is or how its consensus rules are going to play out and six months or uh you know what it even means whether it's like ethereum proof of stake or proof of work which is it going to be like if you don't have any of that stuff worked out how in the hell does anybody think you're going to get uh secure layers on top of it that have reliable uh forms of value contracts of uh, you know, payment systems. You, you can make a payment system for anything. It's about the value of the underlying thing that you have a payment for. You know, like I can make payment systems. I, I can make a payment system to exchange ladybugs. That doesn't mean ladybugs are super valuable because I've got a really good payment system for them. It is the inherent value underneath it that gives value to the payment network. If none of that is worked out, if none of that is independent, if none of that is secure, what you've got nothing on top of it is either and it's so crazy how bitcoin's history so many events have kind of shown and uh you know made made clear the incredible resilience the incredible anti-fragility of the system itself like like when he talks about the whole segwit2x thing and um what the ultimate argument is it's amazing how i swear it was just i don't even know 
Maybe it's willful ignorance, um, or it's just so much easier to ignore what the real argument was. Um, but the almost universally, the the big blocker sides, the the B cashers and stuff like that insist that the reason Bitcoin did not get a fork was because they wanted to keep the block size small. It, it was an issue of block size. And invariably, if you actually go back over and over and over again, it was about whether or not it made sense to do a hard fork, what the risks of a hard fork were, what it meant to change the consensus rules, and what that instilled, what precedent that set for altering the rules for Bitcoin in the future, particularly when it was highly contentious and there was not a majority of, there was not an overwhelming certain majority of the network that wanted this change. That was the, that was what got me incredibly nervous about it and thinking if this happens then bitcoin really is it isn't that uh that fundamental security there's a there's a great wait hold on a second there's a quick great quote here oh, I, I marked it down somewhere okay yes it may have seemed like an inconsequential change and this is something they said over and over it's just one number it's just one number which is hilarious as you you know analyze and like look back on the actual consequence of that supposed simple one number increase we'll get to that in just a second back to the quote a majority of participants probably supported the increase in the block size or at least the idea of it but it was always a marginal issue and when it comes to change Bitcoin's default position is no. Only an overwhelming majority of all participants, naturally with competing priorities, can change the network's consensus rules. The default position for change is no. And this is where, this is where they completely miss the narrative. They completely miss the understanding of what Bitcoin is and its fundamental like what fundamentally happened during that time, during the forks and the, you know, to Bitcoin Cash and uh, uh, the, attempt, the attempt at Segwit2x is that they will tell you over and over that Blockstream hijacked the protocol and, uh, you know, it was evil takeover for Reddit censorship and blah, blah, when the reality is they were not able to change the protocol. That is it. Nobody hijacked anything. They were trying to they were trying to alter the protocol and Bitcoin told them no. They did not get an overwhelming majority. They did not get consensus and so they forked off. That is the nature. That is what it means to have forked off to a minority network is that they did not get consensus changed. And because there was somebody to point at who disagreed with them, that this means they hijacked the network is so painfully ignorant. They were unable to hijack the network, and so it remained the same. That is what happened. And thank Satoshi that that is what happened. Because for those of you who don't know, the Segwit2x corporate-sponsored, minor-sponsored disaster literally would have killed the network. The supposed simple i can't tell you how many times i mean it's just one it's just one number it's like it's just such an easy change 
and it literally it literally never produced a block. They still some miners still attempted because they had bought futures contracts. Uh, uh, I, I I imagine because they had a position in it and they wanted to. Uh, you know, get some money out of their investment. If you've got a bunch of futures contracts, what's the risk in, you know, mining one block, like just mining on the chain for a little bit so that you don't lose 100% of your your future or your uh, your options or derivatives bet on this new uh, chain, but you only lose 80% of it, you know, like 90% of it, something like that. So they tried to go ahead and go through with it. They tried, but they never produced a block because there was a bug in the supposed simple one metric change of the consensus rules. And it could not be a more perfect example, a more perfect demonstration of how stupid it is to arbitrarily and for very little reason and contentiously change the consensus rules without widespread, overwhelming support for it. They tried and failed to hijack the network and thank God because otherwise Bitcoin would be dead. And for so many people, myself included, that was the most bullish event in Bitcoin's history because it proved how the nature worked, uh, how the nature of the network uh, operated or really was. It proved the anti-fragility of the system, that the default was consensus. The default was you cannot change the monetary policy. You cannot change the difficulty adjustment. This thing is as it is. And no oligarchy of powerful corporations or big exchanges and miners can just get together and decide it's something different. And part of that goes back to the original, the kind of what he talks about in the beginning of this article is that the ability for nodes to fall away and come back online, the agility of the network the, the individual network pieces, just like in the human body, just like in organisms, the ability for some cells to die and then regrow, for some to have errors and be corrected, for, um, you know, to adjust for bacteria and attacks on the system and heal. This is a critical factor, critical factor in being able to keep the system secure, in, able to, in being able to keep it independent. And this is why another reason it is so important to keep the block size small, to keep the underlying foundation of this new financial system lean, agile, able to move through every firewall in the, country, in the world, able to travel through space and be broadcasted over low-band satellite connections. Because otherwise, how are, like, like people talk about all the time, is like, oh, bandwidth in this country is this, and average bandwidth is this. You could easily handle, uh, you know, 50 megabyte, 100 megabyte, 500 megabyte blocks every 10 minutes. But then completely just ignore what it means to sync to a network that has been using 500 megabyte blocks for a year already. If, if all you could get with your bandwidth was keeping up with the network, if you lose 25% of the nodes, they never come back. It is impossible for them to catch up if you've, if you've maxed the bandwidth. If you've just said, oh, it's not important for new nodes to come online. It's, it's just important that we have enough bandwidth to keep in, uh, in sync with the network as a whole. You have destroyed the resilience of the network to recover from damages. You have made a network, you have designed a trend 
Uh, you've engineered it in such a way that it will trend toward centralization, that it will trend toward getting weaker and more fragile as uh, as nodes go offline, as uh, uh, firewalls go up, as governments try to restrict bandwidth, as uh, you know portions of the network go offline. The network cannot heal and replenish itself from those sorts of stressors anymore. That is a critical part of why that is an aspect of this system. And everybody who thinks adversarially, everybody who understood the importance of the consensus rules, everybody who understood the value of this thing as an immutable system knew how dangerous it was or argued vehemently and talked about and discussed about the dangers and the attack vectors and what it opened Bitcoin up to in the future. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. It's stupid. The cost is too great and it will make this system weaker. So remember that whenever somebody of an altcoin or a shitcoin who says they have low transaction fees and gigabyte blocks and all of this, all the fixes that Bitcoin doesn't have, that they are not thinking about that at all. They have created something that is inevitably centralized, that is inevitably fragile, that cannot recover from shocks, that cannot rebuild itself when large portions of the network go offline. And the only end result, regardless of how many decades it may take, whether it takes weeks, months, or half a century, the end result is a centralized, trusted system. We either trend toward more decentralization or less. There is no, let's just control it and change it to find that middle ground where it just doesn't move one way or the other. That immediately opens you to the whole problem of needing to consciously consciously design and control this thing as time goes on to change it according to what one small group or one person thinks it should be while bitcoin continues to survive and gets more decentralized and stronger all the while and then we simply have a market solve all of the other problems it's amazing what you can do when you leave up allowing problems to be solved, when you, when you have a secure foundation, when you have unquestionable property rights, when you create an anchor of truth for people to cooperate under the assumption of and secure that and then allow a market to develop on top of it, that people insist there will never be a solution to the transaction problem while lightning continues to work for me without trouble, like for months now, nothing but beta software that I am using, and I have been using it constantly. But of course, over and over and over, I am told I will never be able to transact with Bitcoin, and yet I do it over and over and over again, and they insist that it's not real, that it just never happened. And having a market on top of it, um, like, like having these things, like this is that's another part of the, God, I'm going too, too long here. I'm, I'm running out of time. But <laughs> uh, that's another thing that Parker Lewis talks about is that that's such an important way, like our behaviors and how individuals adjust to, um, to, you know, faults or errors in the system is such a powerful way, like cold storage methods and things like this, the market itself adjusting to the reality, the unchanging reality of Bitcoin 
is in itself one of the one of the reasons why Bitcoin is so powerfully anti-fragile is because there there is never like when when they have you know when these large exchanges and services or miners have really poor uh, uh, efficiency you have really poor transaction efficiency and really poor usage of the underlying blockchain there's not allowed moral hazard they're not allowed to change it on other people they're not allowed to force a change on the rest of the network in order to allow them to keep being wasteful with the immutability of the chain and risk its underlying security same with exchanges and uh, like hacks and losses within the network this is why the dow is such an awful example of anti-fragility within ethereum it's an example of moral hazard. It's an example of like, oh, well, we'll just let the, the major players control and we'll reverse all of the mistakes that we make. It's not independent. It's not independent. You have an avenue to completely control, to censor, to completely destroy any independence of the system. If you can, re if you can reverse a $100 million hack because, oh, crap, we, we installed a massive fundamental error in our software, in our network. Again, a great example of hard forks are a terrible idea and you don't have, you, you've given yourself an avenue for control and you've recreated the moral hazard of, of bailouts. Like that's what that was. It was a bailout. It was a let's fundamentally change the consensus rules and screw over tons of innocent people who have been making transactions and uh, could have been could have had to pay this price in numerous different ways and put everyone at risk, put the entire system at risk so that we can give back the important people all of their money. While Bitcoin, on the other hand, every time you have a malicious hack or an exchange loses data, it strengthens Bitcoin. It encourages people to hold their own keys. Which, which in and of itself is a, is a growth in the decentralization of the security of that value. Understand the more keys there are securing Bitcoin, like the more distributed they are across keys, the more, the more decentralized the security of the actual value is. Like, I mean, you think about it, if we all had one exchange with one set of keys that was holding all of the Bitcoin, then... Bitcoin itself, the value of Bitcoin would not be very secure. It would be almost completely insecure because there's one key to destroying the entire market value of Bitcoin. Like that, that entire, the whole supply is behind one single point of failure. So in the, to, to encourage people to, to have these losses actually change people's behavior, the participants' behavior within the system, they withdraw from the exchanges. And where there was one exchange key holding 10,000 different users' uh, balances, now it's holding 9,000 different users' balances. And there's a, thousand, there's a thousand additional keys holding most of it. And then where it was 100% of the value of those 9,000 remaining, now it's only... 20% of their value or 50% of their value because they, they were sure to take some of their Bitcoin off the exchange that they didn't need in any short term. They, they finally took the move to separate their cold wallet from their hot wallet rather than keeping all of the money in Bitcoin that they had in an exchange. And it, it also encourages the adoption and development of like multi-signature and uh, time lock contracts and like the, 
the the idea of fidelity bonds and like clawbacks and the the mitigation of exactly these sorts of attacks it's a huge and important area of development and innovation that so many people completely miss they're like oh because bitcoin base layer hasn't changed it's like well it's because we're building infrastructure on top of it and finding all of the different ways that we can utilize that base layer already that these aren't these aren't innovations that happen in the protocol they happen in the market and they are just as important they are the new and open source designs uh, for cold storage, for multiple key systems, for like a time lock clawback function, for when a hacker gets into cold storage, when for the separation of hot, cold, and cool wallets, for more robust key signing processes and the distribution of keys within exchanges. Like in, and, and, and it causes, it strengthens the cultural importance of these very principles. Like, you know, it has a social effect at the same time. It brings it front and center. It, it gets, you know, the whole Twitter sphere and Reddit sphere to the, the, the community itself screams over and over, not your keys, not your coins. We have a freaking Bitcoin holiday. It's a rally cry that noobs hear faster, that when they get in, they internalize it quicker than they did in the past with every new attack or new story it gets reinforced and people don't come in without hearing about that and that makes the new people less vulnerable to the very same problem and when the the few individuals that do uh you know take that risk or the exchanges that don't update to the new systems and use multi-sig and separate their cold and hot wallets um or you know put it all behind one key they pay the price individually and nobody else has to bail them out. No one else has to pay for, for the moral hazard of making them whole when they didn't adhere to the rules, when, when, when they didn't take the responsibility to secure and use Bitcoin as its reality is. There's a really cool analogy. Uh, I think it was Tur. I think it was Tur Demeester on uh, possibly Swan Signal. I've been listening to so much stuff lately, I, I completely forget which it was. I, I, I think that's right. There was a recent Swan Signal um, uh, with Turtemeester, and I think it was him who said this. I, I could be wrong. I'll, try, I'll see if I can find it and get the link in the show notes. Um, but somebody said that Bitcoin has such uh, powerful assurances. Like, it is such a strong system uh, or such a hard money that it's actually brittle. And I thought, wait, what? Like that, th that was a really interesting statement. I was like, wait, what, did, what does he mean? And luckily he immediately uh, explained. But brittle in the sense that it's very easy to lose it, that it's easy to break that ownership because all you have to do is you lose your keys and you'll never get it back. That all you have to do is like somebody has to hack into your computer or into the exchange and if all you've got is that one key and that one key gets exposed, there it is, it's gone and there's nothing you can do. And I thought that was really cool that it's so independent and it's so strong and it's such a hard system of money that it is in fact brittle and part of what we are doing in the market development, in the separation of the keys, in the multi-signature, in the clawback contracts, is creating malleability within that structure to rescue us from our own mistakes. And as we get things like Schnorr signatures or uh, Taproot, where we can actually uh, hide all of this multi-signature behind what appears to be a single key, or the ECDSA two-party 
like the the key breakup of the ECDSA, which is another really cool thing. Um, that is, uh, I think it's, I, I don't know. I, th I think it's on the horizon. I'm not sure if it's here yet. Um, but just another great example of um, making of keeping the hardness of that monetary system while making it more malleable, while while solving some of its brittleness and the speed and risk of losing it. But the underlying, this whole article, the really fascinating takeaway here, and it's such a good way to frame how I see, um, uh, like why I no longer think of Bitcoin as this huge risk. And I tend to still want to tell people, yes, it's risky. Yes, it's risky, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, just because, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm selling a Ponzi scheme and, you know, if they're not ready for it, I don't want them to get into it. Like, like I don't want them to have to learn the lesson the hard way. I want them to hear the lesson and internalize the lesson and then get into Bitcoin when they are ready to get into Bitcoin. Um, but that the system itself at, you know, going on 12 years old and having survived so many attacks and developed and strengthened in so many different ways, we know that it is anti-fragile. We know that it is resistant to unwanted, uh, undesirable change. We know that it is censorship resistant, and we know that as more stressors, more volatility, and more developments come, uh, more randomness is entered into this system, that it will get stronger. I, I, it doesn't it is far more a system of permanence in my mind than it is a risk that it will go anywhere. I can't, I can't see why, having, ha having had Bitcoin survive so many crazy events in its history, so many certainties that it was dying this time and there was nothing anybody could do about it, to see it come back from that. Now, I find it so hard to think something would just outright kill it. it. It seems like we've already proven that you can weaken it, you can slow it down, you can do a massive amount of damage to it, um, you can force it to have to move, you can force it to have to repair, but I don't think you can kill it. I don't think it, it is less of a risk than it is permanent. And that's one of the really cool takeaways of this this whole article that its nature suggests that even in the case of many stressors of continued hacks of a continued volatile and crazy environment that bitcoin will only get stronger and when the legacy system is experiencing the exact opposite it's a whole lot smarter to have your investment in bitcoin it's a whole lot smarter to have a hedge in that because the inevitable trend of the legacy system, if behaviors and structurally fundamental changes are not brought about, is destruction, is that it simply collapses and does not recover. But without change, without fundamental alteration to Bitcoin, without breaking the underlying rules and the system itself, the end goal of Bitcoin is that it will be the most stable and robust anti-fragile monetary system that has ever existed. You know, which, which wave do you run a ride? Which trend do we want to follow? What a crazy system.
What a uh, great article. Parker Lewis, as always, just just killing it uh, with this Gradually Then Suddenly series. I love it. It is uh, very, very possibly, I've read so much, it's hard, but this is very possibly my favorite uh, a set of articles that I've read um, and had a great conversation with him too. Uh, took a long time for us to get him on the podcast. I don't even know why. Um, but uh, if you haven't listened to that one, I'll, I'll drop that in the show notes and I will link to the page with the entire Gradually Then Suddenly series. Uh, right now it's on thecryptoeconomy.com, but I'll have it. Um, still a lot of work being done, but uh, I'll have it on bitcoinaudible.com soon as well. Uh, so yeah, don't forget to follow at Bitcoin Audible and me at The Crypto Economy so that you don't miss all of these great pieces. We got so much more to come and I'm working on a lot of stuff in the background, and I'm really excited to share it with you. I've got two audiobooks right around the corner. They have been submitted, and I'm waiting for approval just for them to drop on Audible. I will let you know about that. Follow so you don't miss it. They're really, really good pieces. Uh, it's Knut's new book, Bitcoin Independence Reimagined, and uh, Masir Mamadov's book, uh, This Book Will Save You Time. Uh, and they're both just awesome reads, so highly recommend it. I'll let you know when those drop. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss a lot of the awesome stuff that is to come and so many of the best works written in Bitcoin, made available and audible for you to hear. Best way to support this show is swanbitcoin.com guy. Set up your Bitcoin. You're, you're, you're helping yourself, really, but you're also supporting the show. Uh, you set up your auto DCA, auto buy Bitcoin savings plan at that URL, and you are also throwing a couple of sats my way, a couple of dollars in sats my way, and I, and you're also setting yourself up for a Bitcoin sound money, anti-fragile future, baby. So you got to do that. And of course, at bitblockboom.com, do not forget if you are getting your tickets for the Bitcoin Maximalist Conference in Texas, don't forget to use offer code CC. That saves a huge chunk of money, 30%. That is not to be dismissed. And do not forget it because uh, those are some precious, precious sats that you will get back. Again, offer code CC at bitblockboom.com. All right, guys. Whew. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a heck of an episode. Are we, what is this? Is an hour and 30 minutes? Good Lord. Um, hell of an article. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys.